Welcome to The Gray Report. I'm your host, Spencer Gray. And if you're a multifamily investor, whether you're active, passive, just curious, or you've been in the industry for decades, this is the YouTube show and podcast that we have designed especially for you to get you the most up-to-date and important information related to the multifamily industry, commercial real estate, and the economy. We're going to be giving you, again, the information you need to make some really smart and informed investing decisions. Great reports today. Going to be talking about rent growth from CBRE, Marcus and Millichap, Yardy Matrix, and National Association of Realtors. Going into that CPI print that came out from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. I'm just yesterday, we're getting ready for Mr. Jay Powell, Chairman of the Federal Reserve, to give a press conference here later today. We anticipate a 50 basis point rate hike. If something other than that happens, there'll be quite a big news. We'll give you an update. Let's break into it, get into it. Welcome to the Great Report. All right, everyone, welcome back to the report. Again, joining us as he does every week, except for one time. One time, Matt was sick. Yep. Matt Bosnacle, Director of Communications and Marketing here at Great Capital. Matt, how is your how's your week going? How are you feeling? What's your state of mind? I'm pretty well. Like I said, like you mentioned earlier, we're looking to the future. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is the week where everyone, it's either they come up with their top 10 lists at the end of December or they get their predictions for next year. Mm-hmm. We'll have a lot of articles up until mid-January, I think, of like, here's what to expect for the new year. Yeah. But it's it really started a flood. And there's other stuff like the chat GPT that I've been thinking about. And uh, yeah, it's not time to be scared. You got to have to come to terms with it because it's coming. A lot of things in 2023 are going to come and it's better just to get used to it than to try to run away from it. I agree. And I think the most optimistic viewpoint right now is that that we maybe are getting back to a little bit of normalcy. Yeah. Know, when I looked, when I saw the the print of CPI, the consumer price index come out yesterday, I went on, we'll take a look here in just a second. But I remember I looked at it for the print for November and I look back to previous years, going back to the last like five or seven years, the very kind of typical November rate of growth. And then thinking about that, the really the two buckets that were growing, food and housing, I can't speak so much for food, but at least housing, we've actually seen a lot of declines and growth the last yeah. quarter or so. And we've talked about the way CPI calculates housing, not the most intuitive up-to-date number. So in the reality, maybe we're a little seeing a little bit of the actual deflation and what the Fed has been doing with raising interest mm-hmm. rate actually having an effect on the economy. Yeah, I think that seems very likely. It's starting to strain credulity at this point that the Fed will have no effect. And it's been doing, it's been steadily raising interest rates for the better part of a year. And it, so I think that now that we're really starting to see it. And it's not a case where jobs are shedding left and right. It's things are tightening a little bit. Yeah. And oh, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say soft landing and mean it, but it definitely looks a lot more likely that things are going to ease up rather than crash down to earth. Matt, let's actually just go take a look at this report real quick. Yes. Um, Because you see here, so we're 7% year over year, November 21 to November 22, 7.1% increase. Now that's a lot, but we had a lot of growth earlier in the year, November last year, but only month over month, it's actually negative. I think we're at a point where folks... Not just in the investment world, the business world, but people all over the world are starting to feel the pain of these higher interest rates. Yeah. One, immediately, first-time home buyers trying to buy a home. Obviously, they've been feeling pain for a while. People in the tech industry who are going through layoffs because their valuations are all messed up and they've got too many people and just non-profitable companies aren't in favor right now. Yeah. But with the higher interest rates and with that, the strength of U.S. dollar 
the individuals that are really going to be affected, it's not just individuals, but it's the developing world and a lot of much poorer countries mm. that are having to import everything. Almost everything is based on the U.S. dollar. It makes things more expensive for them. They are loaded with debt already. Any of these countries are almost insolvent. And we've been in a free money, zero interest rate environment for so long. A lot of things have been able to get by, but now they're having to... The cost of that debt and carrying that debt has increased significantly. And so for a country like the United States, you've got our, what, 30-some trillion dollar debt. That's not going to be easy for us either because we're, as that debt rolls over, paying a higher interest rate. But again, think of these like small countries who have a ton of debt. Yeah, Their interest payments are going up. They're not going to be able to afford any. They can't afford anything. They can't afford these new payments. So the there's people, countries institutions are starting to feel pain and they're looking at the federal reserve and central banks, but especially the U S federal reserve. They're saying enough is enough. Your goal of slowing down the economy and getting inflation in check, you take a bow and you're do, you, yeah. you've done a lot of that. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I said this before, I always think of raising interest rates in the terms of buying houses. Less people will buy houses, yeah. but it is really the aggregate of all of these small decisions that people and businesses make. Do I want to put this on credit? No, that's going to be a little bit more expensive to me. Yeah. And I think it's starting to catch up, whether it's businesses that want to invest in a new department or, a, or they want to found a new company and they need, and they need financing for it or a multifamily yeah. syndicator wants to make an acquisition. Maybe they're less likely to do it at a higher price now and they're coming yeah. down. They're like, I'm going to say no now until I get a lower price before they were like, well, oh, yeah. And then they can't, it. and they, they couldn't make it make sense. The returns didn't work and you'd have to do so much speculation to justify it. And fewer and fewer people are willing to do that. There were some yeah. earlier this year that were, but I'm hearing whether it's like some people, owners post on LinkedIn of being like, I think need the federal reserve needs to stop this. And I'm like, no, well, you've got a handful of floating rate loans out there. You've seen your rates adjusted every single month and it does yeah. suck. It hurts, but it's because we're, we are withdrawing. We're in a state of withdrawal from being addicted to zero interest rates, free money. We've been addicted to it in governments around the world that have been, including the United States government, have been absolutely addicted to it. Yeah. And we're going through withdrawal and we're seeing kind of normal economic activity and kind of the gravity exists taking place. And I think withdrawal is a really apt term because it's not like, Typical psychology where everyone, you know, it's different. And I'm going to complain a little bit. We have had easy money for so long that we've been this, dependent. Yeah, yeah, that it really has had fostered some dependency. And this is something we haven't seen for decades. Interest rates this high. Yeah, I think that a dramatic reaction is it's in the cards still. You're seeing, I guess, the again, the good side of this is you're starting to see some of these signs of normalization that were hopefully yep. going to lead to less volatility and people being able to make decisions about the future, which is, that's been the ice that's been thrown on everything is I mm-hmm. can't make a major decision because I don't know what's going to, the situation is going to be in three months. Yeah. But now if, okay, maybe we, they don't, they're not going to decrease rates right away unless something really drastic happens, but at least it's going to flatline and just going to go, just going to be a flat line, there's not going to be further increases. You can at least plan. And that'll allow asset pricing to finally fully correct. And I think we're anywhere between 72 and 80% of the way there for price correction. We're seeing cap rates rise. There's still a gap in many cases, yeah. but I'm we're seeing more and more deals now coming up of having much more reasonable cap rates. Often we looked at a deal yesterday and it was still mid four cap, I'm like not a great location and that semi quality asset. We're not, who's going to be buying 
or yeah. you certainly should be. Who's buying right now at a cap rate 7,500 basis points lower than your interest rate right now in this environment? It's not a prudent or wise thing to do unless you really know something that everyone else doesn't know. There's certainly circumstances out there and cap rates don't mean everything, but we're seeing more mid-fives caps. I and mean, we bought six, six and a, almost a six and a half cap last week. It does exist and brokers and sellers are starting to understand the reality. And you're either at a point of I have to sell and it is what it is and the market's going to set the price or you can hold on. And most people who can't hold on are choosing to hold on. And it's creating the kind of the precipice of a great opportunity of these assets that are going to need to be sold, whether it's debt coming due or some other situation where they don't have a choice. And there's going to be a lot of folks that are breaking even and some people even taking a loss on assets. They just didn't set up the right way to weather through this storm. At the same time, there's so many buyers that are lined up ready for those opportunities. And so I think that there's going to be a very brief time of getting some really good deal, some just like some steals, Mm -hmm. like just blockbuster home run deals that are going to build absolute generational wealth for those people, buyers. And then it's going to go back to normal. Yeah. I think that what, and this is something I think you said last week, is the difference between now and early in the pandemic. Yeah, there was a little bit of a wait and see dynamic now, and there was definitely a wait and see dynamic at the beginning of the pandemic, but interest rates. Interest rates makes the math wrong, and that's the real reality. Like, you can convince someone, like, during the pandemic, like, you can actually say, these are great assets, and the money's right, but now, like, the math doesn't work, and you can't change those numbers. You can imagine different scenarios, but the numbers... Yeah, and the pandemic, it was like, the government's like, we're, whoever, the banks are like, we're basically paying you to buy these assets to lock them in, and yeah, you you have to wrap your head around the uncertainty of COVID, but if you're like us, and you're like, okay, yeah, this is going to be not maybe good for the economy, but all right, people still need a place to live. These are great assets. The worst case, the big concern for a brief period of time was like, nobody's got a job. Nobody's going to be able to pay rent. But again, are we going to go for a decade of no one having a job? And then the government stepped in and gave people more money than they ever made before. And which, yeah. which is why we're in this situation to begin with. But yeah, it's a different scenario where the money's not free. You got to actually pay up a lot yeah. for this debt. And so the business plans have to make sense. You actually have to buy it. You can't just say, we're going to buy it because we're going to get so much rank. We're going to get so much rank growth this year and coverage are going to compress a little bit more. And it's going to be worth $10 million more, even if we run it into the ground. It doesn't matter. I mean, I can pay whatever. But now, no, it your basis matters. And that's where this period of price discovery that we're in right now is really interesting. And I see ourselves in great capital, an active participant of figuring out, okay, where is it, where are the price of these assets? And so sometimes you get sent deals from brokers all the time. And sometimes it's a deal that's like, we're so far away. Mm. Of course, maybe it's not the perfect asset for us, but sometimes, no, let's give them a price. Let's give them a price. Let's, we, they need to know, the brokers need to know, the market needs to know, the sellers need to know that this is where we are. And we're not just tossing just stuff on the wall. Yeah. We've got very empirical and straightforward numbers driven reasons of why the price has to be where it is. And yeah, it's $8 million different, but we're not the only ones seeing this. And you need to know this is where the market is right now. You need to come closer to us or you need to decide not to sell, but we're certainly not a buyer at a four cap for and that is a really good point. It's some of the, it's not it's not like the price of a value meal at McDonald's where these things are turning around so much and so quickly you can reach an equilibrium. Like there are a half dozen or a dozen buyers sometimes, maybe less, maybe more, but that's each one of those is a significant input for things like price discovery. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, if they make it back in 21, you might they might have gotten 20 offers, or 25 offers, something like that. So which is a lot on yeah. a multi-way 20 to 
$100 million asset. Now they're getting maybe two, three, four, five, ten 10 max. Yeah. And so it is important, your input. And I think it's folks that are out there, they're trying to buy properties, sometimes can be hesitant of, I don't want, I don't want to offend them with this number. The seller is represented by a broker and always have a conversation of, hey, look, this is way lower. If you don't want me to submit my number, I won't. I don't want to offend anybody. Yep. We've got our process, but I'm happy to share your number. I'm happy to share with you our thought process, our assumptions. We can share with you our model, show you exactly how we arrived at this price. I don't know how many times you know, our acquisitions team has said, you know, the brokers have thanked us. Even though it's, yeah, this price isn't going to work because the seller needs X. Yeah, They've said, this is really great. I need to know this because I they need to know how buyers are looking at it, how the market's looking you at it. You learn if you do, yeah. It's like you, you don't get the job, at least you ask the interviewer, all right, what did I get wrong? So most exactly. times they're not going to get back to you, but it's a good, it, that's how you learn. And then the, exactly, it's how we learn. It's how yeah. everybody learns. And the broker's taking that information to the seller and saying, look, this is where folks are. It's hard for them to justify your price because of all of these reasons and the broker doesn't want to tell the seller, hey, I don't think your property's worth that. It's much easier to say, these are the offers. Yeah. Or it's, I didn't even want to show you this offer, but we had four come in that are at $10 million under. So this other price that is $4 million under is actually a really good offer. Should not be offended by this because this the market is within this range and this is the highest end of the range, even if it's at your low end of the range. Yeah. It's actually a good price. And, that's, and I said this earlier, so I don't really envy the role of the broker. It's hard work. Yeah. And to, and it's not just, oh, I just answer the phone and connect buyer to seller. It's, you have to know so much oh, and yeah. you have to be able to smooth that relationship and be able to communicate really accurately. Yeah. But yeah, in, in all that, returning back to the CPI numbers, I think they're really, I think they're incredibly promising. And I think that it is more of a done deal that we're going to get a 50 basis point rate yeah. hike. And yeah. like, I see some signs of, of the clouds clearing, but I'm not, I don't know if we're completely out of the woods yet, even though we might be, even if it like was zero and we're coasting, we're still at a high yeah. level of inflation. 7.1 yeah. year over year inflation is still big. It's got to burn off. I, I think we need to see a trend. I think in December, which is typically like the slowest month of growth, if we see a continued trend, if that's the case again, okay, that's, I don't think that's going to be everything, but I think February and March yeah. is going to be the real indicator of how inflation is going to look the rest of the year. Because March, yeah. things should really start picking up now the but the fed may be over with the rate hikes yeah by then because of the idea is maybe another 50 basis point in january and then maybe a couple 25s I'm trying to get to that terminal rate of maybe five percent i think that would get us to i think yeah i think that would basically get us there mm -hmm. and so are they going to get the information in time to say we're going to hold off yeah below five percent or is gonna is it is two or three months enough data to show the trend and the last thing they want to do is to have to reverse course again I think that they're smarter than the numbers for CPI, especially when it comes to housing. Yeah, it's um, not like, yeah, they, it's I think they know. know. And that's another thing, too, is housing's still high. Rental housing yeah. is yeah. still high. They're still, CPI is still looking like they're looking at a dinosaur fossil yeah, <laughs> instead yeah. of what the current what the current market is. And they're still showing housing or rental housing costs as as moving up. 0.6%, which is pretty significant when you analyze that. What is it? Six or 7.2, really? Yeah. So it is, it keeps plugging along and it's bound to within the next three months start going down yeah. because it's about it like a 12 month, maybe nine month lag between the shelter prices and the when it finally circulates back into back from the interest rate hikes that yeah. we're seeing. It got, uh, absolutely. And again, it's 
the shelter makes up 30%, 32%, almost basically a third of yeah. CPI. So it's not like a, just like a minor piece that is throwing the whole number off. Again, if shelter was a more real-time, higher frequency indicator as a part of CPI, again, like we would have a negative you could have like point three, point two, point three negative. If this is a third, and I, this is horribly bad math, but if you cut that by a third, that's two, uh, seven point one by a third. I don't know. It seems like less. that's a negative. Yeah, <laughs> man, that's my liberal arts degree going. Yeah, yeah, it's all good, man. Uh, that's why we got Excel. <laughs> so I think we're going to be waiting out for next month's December print. We'll see if it's lower. It should be, and um, we'll keep tracking it. And yeah. again, waiting for Jay Powell's notes. He create. He makes the future. We're, we try to predict it, but we just create it. And again, as we've talked about it, it's so much. This is just psychology and messaging. Yeah. And he has. They've been. In a, they've done an effective job of starting at that Jackson Hole speech of saying we're doing what we need to do, and it's yeah. going to be painful. And just buckle down. So we're doing it, and we're not going to blink. And I think that's such a such an important role for them is to. If we're treating these announcements as a foregone conclusion, then they're doing their job. Um, and they kind of, you don't think that they want surprises like that. And they have been a, done a great job of signaling. Yeah. What what I think that's, I think that's the key point. If you're going to signal, you better be very clear and not yeah. move around mm-hmm. that, that or shut up. Because Fed officials in the past, like used to not say anything mm-hmm. like at all. It was like, here is what it is. We're going to go back into our room now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Three economic trends to watch in 2023. Marcus and Millichap, a nice video. It's going to be posted in the comments here on YouTube, as well as check us out at greatreport.com. It's greatreport.com is the number one multifamily intelligence aggregator, Matt. That's right. So John Chang, Matt, give us a summary. We're not going to necessarily listen to yeah. John. John's a senior vice president, Marcus Millichap, housing expert, really smart guy. I heard him, saw him on LinkedIn talking mm-hmm. about how the CPI print, it was just great news for real estate investors, yeah. by the way. But yeah, to say. so in this one, this broad economic overview, I think really sets the stage with some of the projections of 2023 that we're going to cover here in a second. And they give this explanation of some of the major issues that are going to play out and many of the other reports and predictions that were published this week. John Chang breaks it down to three Consumer sentiment, cash savings and, re- and revolving credit, that's one con- collectively, and the labor shortage. Consumer sentiment is showing signs of a positive trend. Despite the headwinds of inflation, it shows signs of climbing from a record low, is one of one of their headlines there. Cash savings and revolving credit are not in a problematic situation right now, but the trend could bring us to higher credit levels and lower savings, which makes things a little riskier. So yes, consumer sentiment is bouncing back a little. People are feeling a little bit better about purchases, but they are drawing on their savings ever so slightly. We're not at dangerous levels right now, but the trend is there. And then when it comes to the labor shortage, it points to a strong market in the short term. And there is nothing that like screams recession or anything, but it is worth noting that things could change. Either it could be pulled down by recession or recessionary forces, I think it is more likely that this shortage will ease up and which is like a euphemism for there's going to be less jobs out there rather than like a wage price spiral. I think that it is so high in people's imaginations the this idea uh like inflation and we we saw some cutbacks in the tech sector i don't know it, i've also heard a lot that that may not be representative of broader economic trends yes tech sector is yeah. 2% of the job market which is a good that's a pretty significant amount, but it's not the entire economy. I see more as on the, a slowing down in the pace of hiring as companies just are concerned about inflation or really a recession and slow economic growth and just battening down the hatches for next year. 
And so they're saying, hey, look, let's hold off on bringing on a lot of new people right now. And looking at, okay, how many people do we just bring on? Do we really need all those people? And yeah, I agree. I think the tech sector is a little bit of, I wouldn't say a complete anomaly, but it's a unique case. Yeah. And on top of that, it, we've got everything that's going on Twitter and Elon Musk and really significantly reducing the staff. And that's a little bit of an experiment and, in itself that if that works and a lot of tech companies are like, do we need all these people? And it's so hard to generalize between the tech sector, like you said, too. And that's just what I was making. What I was thinking about like Twitter, there are discrete reasons. A new owner came in that made dramatic changes. What about we're talking about all the weirdness in streaming services, how there's been some kind of tension. And so there's there is a there. It's not a systemic thing. There's not like some broad force. There could just be real reasons. I think what's in general, though, is a shift a little bit away from growth stocks into more value, more value. hundred percent. Yeah, no, a lot of that is just technical because of the discount rate. And so you're getting paid less for growth. People yeah. want income now, which is why a lot of people are attracted to real estate because it's a cash flowing, very much value driven asset. And that's kind of the way we've always looked at it. We've been more fundamental investors rather technical and, and, yeah. and spe- speculative. The challenge that is obviously interest rates and people thinking that lumping all of real estate and housing in kind of one category and not wanting to catch a dropping knife, which I don't necessarily think is absolutely true, although prices certainly are correcting. Yeah, there has definitely been a shift. And we've talked about this for a couple of weeks. Things were down in the doldrums, I think, in the beginning of November and maybe a little bit of October. There was some really, there were more negative than positive takes on the economy. Things have taken a, a little bit brighter of a turn. Again, I can't I can't trust that things are going to be good completely. I can't trust that things are going to be bad. We're yeah. still a little I, bit I agree. uncertain. So I was at a conference last week. It's mostly family offices, wealth managers, registered investment advisors. And it was interesting because there was a, quite a few pollings of the room. Yeah. Raise your hand. And everyone really believed that there's going to be some sort of recession in 2023, most likely. But what that looked like and how that what that means for the future, there was really a 50-50 split between, kind of felt between on one side, mostly optimistic that, yeah, there's going to be recession and a downturn, but we see a lot of positive signs and opportunities. And then the other half is, no, the world is like going down. And attended two kind of presentations, one on more of, I would say, the optimistic view. It wasn't really, normally it wouldn't, in normal times, it would not have been considered an optimistic view, but I think a pretty straightforward view of, yeah, things are rough right now. Things are being shaken up. I'm probably going to get through this and it's not going to be the end of the world. Yeah. And on the other side, it was, we're looking at the end of the world. And, but what I found is that the, really two takeaways, one, at least the presentation I saw on the worst case scenario under the world, what really was not that convincing. You can paint a picture and you can mm-hmm. always paint a picture of absolute worst case scenarios, but the evidence just was not convincing. The story was, I don't know, it was hard to follow. So I was listening to a podcast where it had, it was one of the former CEOs of PIMCO. Uh-huh. And he was talking about doom and gloom, how, how things are really going to crash. And the way that he described it, it wasn't necessarily, and it would, by his explanation, result in economic downturn, severe, yeah. or however. He didn't, I don't think that he really indicated that it would be like the Great Recession levels, but he definitely said that things are going to get bad. But the way that he described what is going to happen, it seems more like things are going to be different. Maybe not so bad, 
But things are going to change. Primarily, is a, it, he was talking about a shift from just in time to just in case. We're relying on the ease of shipping lanes. And now maybe there's like some nearshoring, some more domestic investment in manufacturing. And oh, stuff, yeah. And we're which, definitely seeing that. Which to me, it's like that yeah, could bring see. jobs. And again, that may be some inefficiency in the near term, but it's not like we're going to be picking up the rubble after the world has collapsed. That's not what we're going to be doing in 2023. We're exactly. going to be doing things. <laughs> no, the, pen, the pendulum continues to swing and, and it went from everything being offshore to having, maybe that doesn't make that much sense for everything. Mm-hmm. We need to continue to make some things here. That being said, there are going to be markets where you can make stuff cheaper and it's always going to make sense and to for really have a free market. We have to find places to produce things cheaper, have cheaper things here, is if we make everything here, things are going to be more expensive and it is going to be inflationary, but it does make sense to make some things here and well, not rely on every other country. And I forget if you mentioned this last week or not, but it's getting cheaper. Yeah. And really this month and maybe last month a little, we're really starting to untangle that whole thing because when everything stops, you got to get that engine running. Someone's got to take the load of oranges well, from yeah. Florida back to Indiana and then they take the corn down. And then the, when there's a truck ready for you, there it, it flows. Yeah, yeah. And it flows when there, there's that. You can. There's enough set buyers for the seller. You only had one truck running, and there was yeah, one crate exactly. of oranges, and you know, was buying. Those oranges got pretty expensive, <laughs> yeah, pretty quickly. Exactly. And at least that pressure seems to be gone. Plus, energy's way down. Energy's been down month over month for several months yeah. now, and which is great news for Europe. All the mm-hmm. articles about the horrible situation. Your energy prices in Europe are still a couple times higher than they are in the United States. But it's not worst case scenario. We're still early into winter. We're not out of the woods yet. But Things are looking a little less hyperinflationy than they were potentially a couple months ago. But I do think that there are, we're going to see, we're not going to go back to zero inflation next year because onshoring is inflationary. A lot of these policies are relatively inflationary. I think there is going to be yep. some wage price. I don't know if, I think spiral is not the right word, but I think that the wages are going to have to continue to adjust. Wage growth, like around 5%, but we need to see a little, probably a little bit more. Yeah. But like we've looked at, in many reports, like the rent to income levels are in, in line. So we're not too yeah. far out of whack. Yeah, I, I just, and again, I, I am usually an optimist. I like thinking about the worst case scenario and I when we put our deals together. I like to assume that I like to make assumptions that will get us through any type of environment. But in general, I'm an optimist. And yeah, and it's funny thing about investing in, in apartments. And I go back seven, eight years ago when I really started getting into large multifamily investing. And having conversations of it's all worst case scenario. What if this happens? Mm-hmm. What if, what if hyperinflation happens? What if the government does this? And the painting the scenarios where like multifamily apartments just don't work and it all fails mm-hmm. is we're painting scenarios where everything is failing yeah. and going to zero. Not that you can't mess things up and not operate and you can overpay. There's all there's still all kinds of risks. Mm-hmm. But if you if you do the basics pretty well. And you don't speculate too much, and you buy. It's hard to really mess things up over time. It's hard to lose. Yeah, not that there isn't risk, like a hundred percent. And you can think of it in other ways. Like, yeah, better or worse, but things are going to be different. And yeah. even if things are going to go down, there are going to be people that are making money off of that downturn. Some way, somehow, there's going to be some markets that are going up. Absolutely. The largest fortune, fortunes are always made in these types of environments. Yeah. And with the downturn or just things are tossed up in the air and things are up for grabs. Whenever anyone points out like how much money you can make in the stock market, they always say, if you invested at the bottom of the depression or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So we may be reaching a moment where, you know, there's equal opportunity as much as there is you know, maybe a present downturn. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I love that video, Rana. We, were, we just got into such a good conversation, man. All right, let's talk about the National Association of Realtors, the research group 
on the horizon markets to watch in 2023 and beyond. Again, talking about the future, that's the kind of the theme for today. This Praise is a down. little bit of a light article, and then and then we can follow it up maybe with a little bit of discussion about the CBRE link, which I don't want to pull up, yeah, but I'll get it. that pulled up. NAR does its own stage setting, <laughs> as much as the Marcus Amilichap set the stage, calling 2022 the year of softening. Like a sweater, maybe? Like dryer sheets? I don't know. I think it's... <laughs> the year of moderation. Like softener? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think yeah. the year of moderation seems a little bit more appropriate with inflation as bad as yeah. it is. But after a little preamble, NAR explains the criteria that they use to pick the markets to watch in 2023 and beyond. They're really talking about the housing market. And, and really single family homes, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And But I think that do, this does relate, and I'll get Has, to that yeah. in just a yeah. second. So they're looking for markets with better housing affordability than the national level, more renters who can afford to buy the median priced home than the national level, stronger job growth, more tech jobs than the national average, stronger in-migration and population growth, a lot of remote workers, faster growth of active inventory than the national level, and a smaller housing shortage than the national level. For this last one, really, they argue that people are more likely to buy a home in a market that has more homes than one that does not, which clarifies things a little bit, I think, and reemphasizes the fact that they're looking for markets where people are most likely to buy a home. A lot of these indicators will also spot point to strong rent growth in their markets to watch. But again, they're really looking for this volume of home sales. More home sales more than anything else. So what are these markets? I'll name them. <laughs> Atlanta, Georgia, Raleigh, North Carolina, Dallas, Texas, Fayette, Fayette, Arkansas, Greenville, South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Huntsville, Alabama, Jacksonville, Florida, San Antonio, Texas, and Knoxville, Tennessee. All these markets are arguably within the Sun Belt. Knoxville could be a stretch since some maps put Tennessee in the Sun Belt and some yeah, don't. I think it's, yeah, it's, yeah, for yeah, the rhetorical yeah, purposes yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to make here, I'm lumping Tennessee into that sunny oh, yeah. American Belt. Yeah, absolutely Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I, uh, like I said, it's important to distinguish what the purpose of this is, but it makes sense to expect people to want to live in the South for the same reasons that people want to live, that they wanted to live there in the past few years. The Midwest probably won't be sitting at the top of rent growth lists forever, but if history any guide, Midwest is still going to stay stable. Oh, yeah. I think that this is more of a case where people are coming back to the Sun Belt, but maybe not in the exact same markets. Like maybe they're not going to Phoenix. I know Boise is not in the Sun Belt, but these active markets, maybe they're going to avoid them, but go to a place that has similar amenities in yeah. a similar location. I think it's the, the trend is your friend and if you have, these are all popular metros for one, re, one reason or the other. And I would say jobs is the, the underlying theme of all of these markets have great job growth, yeah. great population growth, and population job growth usually follows the job growth. And yeah, they're all in moderate climates, so it makes a lot of sense. It, just because people are building a lot in, in Greenville or Dallas or Raleigh or Atlanta, that means there's demand, people want to yeah. live there. Mm -hmm. And can you build too much? Yes, but if you have enough growth, typically that would be there'll be a short-term issue. Now yeah. it can be a bad, very bad short-term issue, and I think markets like Phoenix that's not on this list are going through that with and Austin a little bit of a price correction yeah. from prices and rents because they just were flying so high. But in two years from now, we're going to be talking about Phoenix on top, probably next yeah. year oh, yeah. um, mm -hmm. of rank growth once again. Uh, yeah. So I think this makes a lot of sense. And this is specific for single family homes. But yeah, I don't think the Sun Belt is. There are reasons why Sun Belt versus the Midwest versus the West versus the coast or primary gateway markets. There's pros and cons. Mm -hmm. I would say that the Sun Belt is definitely the consensus trade yeah. and it is the easiest to make sense of mm -hmm. because 
the migration story, the job growth story makes a lot of sense. You are paying for that story a little bit. People have been very successful over the last cycle and continue to yeah. be investing in these markets. Yeah, I agree. And I think we did, we looked at a place in Greenville too. Yeah, Andrew, um, yeah, yeah, we made offers in Greenville and, and uh, Charleston. And uh, yeah, and again, we're mostly focused on the Midwest, but you know, we track markets all across the country looking for opportunities. Yeah, Huntsville is a market that we looked at a lot, just to us, the pricing, sometimes the pricing gets to a point, the cap rates are so low yeah. where we have to look at it from, okay, one, cash flow is not as good. We have there's gross there. If we speculate, yeah, we can show good IRR. Hmm. Cash flow investors, so it's tricky. And then just the, what's our tactical advantage? What's our yeah. competitive advantage yeah. versus everyone else is going to be going to that market? And I have an on-the-field competitive advantage in Midwest, especially in markets in Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, Michigan. We'd go down to Knoxville, Tennessee. That wouldn't be as bad, but let's say we go down to like a da- Dallas is the best example. Yeah. There's so many good operators in Dallas. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to compete with them, even though we've got a great platform and run things great. But yeah. I don't know. I don't know the market. My family in Dallas, but I'm not, I don't know the market. I'm not going to know the market like some of the folks that have been buying and operating real estate in Dallas for yeah. a decade or two. Yeah. So it's, there's, I would invest with other folks in Dallas, but I'm not going to go to Dallas because. I don't have a competitive advantage. And this is something we probably, I think I remember talking about this like a year ago and on the gray report, but like growing, even just growing up in a city, you don't know if that flashy little submarket is something that's a flash in the pan yeah. or if it's got some real, some real legs. So there's some intangible factors that come with market knowledge. All right, Matt, this brings up the CBRE report that I want to move to. It burned down the chapters. It's an interesting way that they've organized this report. And again, you can go to gray report.com subscribe to the newsletter greatcapitalllc.com slash newsletter to learn more but uh, let's talk about their second chapter and their report is the economy and policy yeah so their the total report is the u.s real estate market outlook for 2023 cbre the and their overview they said that it estimates 55 minutes to read i won't spend 55 minutes talking about it that's why people subscribe to the great report (laughs) that's right but i do want to say that yeah we're dealing with a very extensive piece here and we won't be able to cover every single aspect as so with that being said as a smooth extension of the economic stage setting that we just had we can jump right into this economic outlook for 2023 there's going to be a recession they say but not a deep one cbre has a table which i think is really helpful show the their quarter by quarter forecast for GDP, federal funds rate, and unemployment. It looks like inflation will trend downward to 4.1 by end of year 2023, but unemployment could go up to 4.7, and the federal funds rate could stay around five to five and a quarter percent by the end of 2023. Not ideal. They say shallow, but I don't like the I don't like the interest rates staying that high, um, and the fact that employment could go up a full percentage point by the end of the year. Uh, that's a little bit of a bumpy road. It's not the rosiest of scenarios. I agree. Unemployment at 4.7% historically is really not that bad, though. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Typically, and in, in all, yeah, it's about a little bit on, not even on the upper range, if you look at the- now, I forget which economists back in, the, I think it was the Carter administration, they're like, we would, our dream was 5% unemployment. There's this idea of replacement employment or something like that, where you have to have a certain level now. I'm not sure if it's 3.7B, 2, or 5 where there's enough, almost like liquidity, where people are moving in and not getting locked in and the yeah. availability of people and of jobs is reaching that kind of balance. But again, I think that, yeah, you are right. Historically, 4.7 is not too bad. They go to great lengths, I think. CBRE. And that's also in the context of a recession. Yeah, that's a good point. That yeah. 5% in good times would be good. It's funny because we were talking 
it seems like people forgot that there was a little bit of uncertainty. Were we ever in a recession in 2022? Because there, because now a lot of the economists and articles are like, oh, could there be a recession in the future? I was like, what, what, what were we doing in 2022? The stock market went down, down, down. And that, but yeah, I And know. two consecutive quarters of yeah, yeah. GDP so, growth. I guess there's some technical reasons why maybe we weren't because okay. of some demand being, some things being carried forward from last year. But okay. uh, yeah, I agree. It's like, it certainly in many ways felt like a recession. In other ways, not at all. Yeah. But um, that, that's why everyone, I don't think has been able to make heads or tails of it, but it's not been good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So CBRE, again, they go to great lengths to emphasize that this projected recession will be short-lived. Their implication is that we're going to have a very attractive buying opportunity next year. I'm not convinced it's going to be a perfect opportunity to find and finance high-performing multifamily investment properties only because we saw this prediction in 2020. We talked about this really earlier in this episode. That being said, 2023's high interest rate situation is a key difference from 2020. So that could reduce competition among buyers such that opportunities will be available, but really only for investors that are able to solve the financing challenges. And I think you are going to have the cojones to step into the market because the time to step in is not going to be when, oh, everything is all clear and it's fine. There's Mm going to be like the storm is still going to, it is going to feel like it's the darkest time. The storm is raging and this is never going to end. And that's going to be the time to get in. Once the clouds clear, that's everyone's jumped in. Prices are going to jump back up. And so it's going to be a little bit of staying up to date on a very high frequency rate, which again, that's what the gray report is for. Without it, I don't know how you could do it, but and then having yeah, the confidence and the ability to execute to move forward and yeah. take a risk. It's going to be, there's going to be some risk of being wrong. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. It's like the time to jump into the market is pretty, pretty risky. We were talking last week about time in the market versus timing the market. And it's inherently yeah. risky to figure out when to jump in and when to make that. And, the, I, and it's, you don't want to say we're not buying anything right now and then we'll make a decision to get back in. I think you always have to be in and you just have to have yeah. criteria and you have to have your standards and expectations and adjust those not to facilitate doing like bad deals. It's not like, hey, well, it's loosen up during a recession. It's no, you tighten your criteria. And that's why I've been telling our arm like Addison and, and Jay of, yeah, last year we might have been able to justify a, a 14 IRR if the cash flow is good and was a great asset and we're putting great debt on it. But now it's no, I'm, we have to see 16, 17, 18, 20% IRRs and yeah. not five for 6% cash flow. We need to see seven, 8% cash flow. Yeah. We haven't seen that in a long time. Let's, we're doing deals, but they've got to be good deals at yeah. a right price that is attractive enough. And that comp- most important thing is that compensates for the risk. Yeah. Yeah. I'm jumping in right now. Times may be tough, but I am the confidence comes from being conservative on a, based on our assumptions and knowing that our margin for errors is so high. And yeah, if the next year is crap, it's still going to, it's still going to work out because we've, whether it's bringing on enough reserves, buying a right location, being patient and not just rushing into anything. It's not, we've decided yesterday, let's go buy some apartments on a fire sale. It's like, we're always in the market buying the right stuff at the right price. Mm-hmm. You just have to be adaptable, dynamic. We talked about earlier is feedback from bro- to brokers. Yeah. If you're out of the market, if your pencil's down, are you going to be the first one that they call? Yeah. They're going to be like, I would have called yep. you, but you guys weren't buying anything. You guys were pencils. Oh, you're not pencils down. I didn't know. And you're not going to be on the broker's radar, but also you're not going to have a good idea. You're not going to be able to do your own job really well. Yeah. Wait, where is the market? Yeah. Where, where, 
what does it look like? What do I do? Yeah, because you can read all these reports, but ultimately having that exercise of putting it on the line is, I think, is really important. I agree. I agree. Their forecast for the 10-year treasury is optimistically flat because that's what we have needed is just some consistency. And who knows, that would be like a unique time of history that it was that flat for so long because they don't know. And this is forecasting out to 2028. Yeah. We're, we shall see, what is this? I mean, this isn't even... Well, within the bottom like quartile of where interest rates have been. And you look at this and it has a, a general trend, lower and lower. Yeah. Who knows, maybe we did reach bottom earlier in 2020, but I don't know. Oh, in the 10 year? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When it was almost like 50 basis points, I think it was like 4.048 yeah. at one point. Yeah. And then it was topped like 4.2 some, in some change. And now we're back at three and a half or so, which is totally fine. Historically, like these 10-year rates are just look and open the graph again. Yeah, it's a run up. But again, yeah. it's like a run up back mm-hmm. years or so. But over the long term, it's a lot better than four, 15% 10-year treasury rates. Yeah. With inflation that wasn't so far too far away. Yeah. 2023 will be interesting. And, and you know, that the Marcus and Millichap, sorry, the, the NAR title of the year of softening, I think it's year of transition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the way I see it. And just the pendulum's shifting back and forth and just reverberations and expansions and refractions, mm-hmm. expansions and refractions. And it's a whiplash where it's like when you see drop a stone or something into the water and first ripples are the biggest ripples. Yeah. They're the most impactful. And then as they permeate out, those ripples are smaller and the waves are shallower until it becomes calm again. Yeah. So I think we're vibrating back in that. No, I agree. And that's something that actually that, that the Yardy Matrix report makes emphasizes as well. If you want, we can start yeah, <clears throat> talking yeah. about that. Jump right in. Regular listeners probably have lost count of how many times the Gray Report has covered Yardy Matrix monthly multifamily research publication. But number one, it is an excellent detailed report. Number two, the market's always different. Yeah, it's the same report, but they're going to be talking about a lot of difference. And that's how I wrote this, especially in a transition year like 2022. Following the changing trends of the multifamily market is extremely helpful, really well, valuable. They took, they picked a great skyline to feature. Yeah, it is. That's a beaut. Ooh, man, that's a good stock photo. Yeah. Indian, um, it's Indianapolis, <clears throat> the top of the charts this month. Yep. It's been going around the, uh, the LinkedIn's and, and such. For sure. And it's been about a few months. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure how long it's going to stay in, but it is a virtue of its stability and its continued stability. Well, if history is any guide, it's not going to rise and fall with the volatility of markets. Well, it's more of like when I get the questions, because again, I was talking to investors all last week who known us from Indiana and people from international investors too, people from did not know what Indiana yeah. was and weren't sure what Chicago was. And so I'm like, if you haven't heard of Indianapolis, then do you know where Chicago is? If I'm mm-hmm. talking internationally, that's usually the line of the conversation yeah. goes. But, but to so many people are like, where are you, where are you investing? I'm like, mm-hmm. Indianapolis. And they're like, Indianapolis, what's going on? Why should yeah. I invest there? And so last week, Lisa, I'm like, did you know Indianapolis is like top rank growth in the nation year yeah. over year? And they're like, Interesting. And I like that. I like this that fact too, because of just what I said. It's not only is it a, it's, on the top for a reason. And it's not a reason because people just are happening to move in. It's because of its, has this history of stability. And it's like they said in this article, it says Indianapolis is still among the least expensive of the major metros. 
And yeah, it's one of the handful of markets, really less than a handful, where rents have continued. Their numbers for rent growth, this is the first month where Yardi Matrix has had a negative month-over-month rent growth at negative 0.5% for November 2022. Year-over-year is still at 7%, but Yardi Matrix is detailing the same economic context that we have covered just earlier here. We've got a little bit of inflation, a little bit of interest rates, but in their interpretation, the current slowdown is a correction from a level of rent growth that would be unsustainable under optimal conditions. It is not, they say, unexpected, nor is it necessarily a sign of a deep recession. So this is, yeah, this is the drop of the water that the water's coming up now and it's going down and, and, and it's reaching a level of equilibrium. I would say a little bit of a, uh, this is normalizing, moderating a little bit of a cool down, but it is a reaction to 20% 20% rent growth. Yeah, know. exactly. It's what comes up, comes down. Look at any type of technical analysis. It's, it's There's usually a reversion to some sort of mean, and the mean can move. But- and the proof is, what we've mentioned before, is a lot of the high flyers are the ones that are having the most anemic growth currently. Yeah. So you look at the past, huge rent growth in the past, and now it's a little bit... And that's what's really dragging this rent growth down. If everyone was steady, like Indianapolis, <laughs> maybe things would be different. But it's true. Yeah. I mean, in really month over month, there's only really two markets in the country that are positive month over month, Indy and New York City, which New York was negative all of 2020 and part of 2021. And Indianapolis was positive. One of the few markets that were positive during 2020. Again, that was part of the conversation I was having last week with a lot of these family offices is that in high talking about Indianapolis is that there's a consistent theme of being able to get through an economic economic downturn in relatively unscathed. 2008 affected everything, all asset classes, all real estate. But Indianapolis was nothing, anything like a lot of other markets. Wasn't nearly as bad. Pandemic, Indianapolis was on top. Some of the least amount of job losses, Mm -hmm. jobs point, very positive. And then from a rent growth perspective, near the top, I think we were number four in the country in 2020. Yep. Now, similar, 2021, we are number one, number two, certainly in the top five of rent growth, regardless of where you look, that's a consistent trend of resilience. And there's a handful of other Midwestern markets that are in there as well. Kansas City that has been doing well as as well. I'm not seeing Cincinnati on this list of month to month, but they typically do pretty well as well. Columbus, again, just a lot of other Midwestern markets are just a little less volatile, but still have really good growth. And also, there have been some adjustments to some of the census projections. So population growth is actually mm. projections have ticked up in a lot of these Midwestern markets mm. as well. And the counter argument against the Midwest would be you don't, they don't have the growth that the Sun Belt does. There's still a decent amount of growth, and it's maybe not as much as in Atlanta or in Austin. Indeed's never going to be in Austin. It's not going to be in Atlanta necessarily, but that's okay. And that's where I think it's much more niche tactical opportunity, yeah. but and, riches are in the niches. And yeah, <laughs> the I think it's worth emphasizing that these are affordable markets as well. And that could be a big driver and sh- maybe not a driver of rent growth, but certainly a, a driver of kind of stability, like this backdrop of stability because it's so affordable. Yeah. You would expect people to to be able to sustain themselves and to live in and to not be pressured like some of the renters or homeowners in other markets in other states and stuff. Agreed. I'm um, just looking at renewals. Unsurprisingly, you know, renewals have started to come down a little bit. This is for residents re-signing a lease. They were still, the rate of renewals are still high. I mean, there were no rates in mid-60s 
In the past, our average would be about 50%. You'd assume 50% would leave, 50% would stay. The fact that we're still 60s, Baltimore 70, Indy 64, Sacramento is basically 60, and that's really strong. And then the, the increases are also quite, quite high, really, in these this top 15 or so, 10 to 20% renewals. That would be huge organic rent growth, because yeah. again, typically on a renewal, you're only increasing 2 or 3%. So I think this is the one, we're going to see this continue to a point until more rents are caught up to market. Yeah. But I think that's going to be an interesting story where a lot of the growth is going to be coming from getting these older leases back up to market, yeah. not as much on pushing market rents. Because I think there's a feeling of, all right, we, we push market rents so much in 2021. Let's just kind of get everybody else up there. Let's take a pause. We're getting rents significantly higher than we thought we were going to be right. But mm-hmm. let's be happy with that. Now, expenses are rising also. And that's the other thing that rents are only one side of the story story. You, know, you got your revenue, but then you got your expenses and utilities. And we talk about energy being cheaper. Utilities have not gone down anytime soon. Utility yeah. costs are just tough. Payroll, it's not going down anytime soon, especially when you want the right people. You have to pay up for the right team and nothing can improve or completely throw a wrench in the gear of a business plan is not having the right people in the right place, mm-hmm. not to mention labor and, or, and other types of materials that are just more expensive. Yeah. So it's going to be a challenge trying to see positive NOI growth well, that's what I was, without organic growth. So in CBRE's multifamily section, they project 4.3% rent growth, but they also project 4.1% inflation. So we got 0.2? Yeah. That's not a lot of point. <laughs> nope. No. Uh, but yeah, the other thing that I wanted to note, and this is for uh, for avid readers of this report, if they scroll down to the rent to income chart that Yardy Matrix uses to track affordability, Kansas City and Indianapolis used to be like specifically and reliably at the bottom. But I think that there was some shakiness in the reporting this week. Specifically, you're looking at Atlanta, Denver, Dallas, and Chicago, and they have an average that is much lower than what I think think should be. You think, again, this comes back to how they're calculating a renter by necessity and lifestyle units. And because it's interesting, the renters by necessity was renters by necessity versus renters by choice. And I think lifestyle units, luxury renters by, it's the same thing. But with the rising cost of mortgages, you're just having more and more people who are still doing pretty well, but they're yeah. just, they're, they are a renter by necessity. And they may still may want to live in a lifestyle unit though. That's yeah, where maybe there's even... a higher weight to the renter by necessity now. But again, like here, I'll use an example. If you scroll down to, I think that that's Chicago. No, Dallas here. They say Dallas that the average rent to income is 21.7. But on the other hand, the renters by necess or the rent the lifestyle renters have a 32.7 rent to income ratio and it and the renters or in Denver. N- yeah. Oh, that's Denver. I'm yeah, sorry. No, but it's the same story. So how so for <laughs> lifestyle it's 32%. For renters by necessity, it's 29%. So how's your average 27, 21.7? 21.7. I think that'd be something. So is that including affordable? Because certainly it's not an average between these two. So what are the other categories? Is it affordable units? All I'm saying to I am telling readers, if they read this thing, what the last four things I would put an asterisk on and say maybe those don't belong there. Where it starts getting true, where it starts making sense to me is at Kansas City where 24.6, that seems reliably between 23% and 25.7%. So that starting to make sense right yeah, there. Yeah, like Indy, Indy, renters by necessity, 274 and lifestyle, 24.2. 
five, which is higher than the last report we looked at. So the average is twenty six. Okay, yeah, that 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 makes a sense. That makes sense between twenty four and twenty seven. Yeah, twenty six. Baltimore. Yeah, I don't get it. So yeah, so Baltimore for renters by for the lifestyle renters thirty five percent. That's cost burden. Anything over thirty percent is cost burden. Thirty three percent for affordable units, but their average is twenty five. The contact matrix. We're gonna have the contact already matrix. Yeah, I don't know if you want to get to the fun part of this of a gray capital, gray report. Yeah, let's get into the fun stuff. <laughs> okay, so we were, we've been having some fun. I was having some fun yesterday and the day before. There's a lot of talk of this chat GPT, this yeah. AI little chatbot. And I'm like, okay, yeah. First, I was like, I don't get it. Chatbot's been around for a while. It's like Siri. Like, yeah. why is it that interesting? It's a free tool. It's so popular right now that it's crashed server. So we're, yep. we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it live while we were recording, and we're gonna try it real quick just to see because it's really cool. The cable lighting. Yeah. And what are the applications for applying? And just in, in some of the notes that I have, it's this technology. It's currently available for free public use to anyone that signs up with, for an account. They have been really swamped with requests for their little AI machine, but it is fun to try out. And it uses artificial intelligence to create really readable articles. Ones that Kind of passed the smell test. Well, but not just articles. It's a it's optimized. It's, it's an AI. It's optimized for dialogue. You can ask it questions. You can have it solve problems. Passable essays on English history in the 1600s. Professional emails and so much more that it is worth mentioning because there are th- there are use cases. I can't even imagine yet. Yeah, and that's what we're, we've been trying to figure out. Okay, what is the actual practical uses of this? Because you can do a lot with it. And one thing that I thought would be interesting for people watching this. Sh- watching the gray report. Okay, this is what we some things that we tried out yesterday. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about some because I don't have time to do it, do all of it. But one thing I asked was what what are if I can actually spell, what are 15 good videos, video ideas that multifamily investors would, if I can type, would be interested. All right. So it's like, all right, we want to we need to come up with some content. Yeah. You know, what will give us some ideas. Okay. It's like, we, we could brainstorm here. We'd come up with some good ideas, but it's like, I'm just, so it needs to know what a multifamily property is. It needs to know what multifamily investors would be interested in. And then it needs to see what would be popular. So again, just quick prompt to our recently renovated multifamily property, highlighting the upgrades and improvements that were made. Interview with a successful multifamily investor, discussing their strategy. Yeah. Discussion of the importance of conducting thorough due diligence for purchasing a multifamily property, the different types, uh, how to calculate potential return on investment, Video discussing the different financing options. Video. This is like detailed, and this is not. They're not giving you a website. Yeah. Uh, here, someone else gave out fifteen mm-hmm. ideas, and I, I, I could have told it twenty. I could have told it five. Yeah. So for again, this is just like on the marketing side. Of like what we. This was an idea, but it just. But it can do so much more than this. So another thing I did yesterday. Oh, it may, it may have run into a limit. got a network error, and that's it's not perfect, and yeah. the server is completely swamped. But that was I think it was a good example to just throw out there. Yeah. So yesterday I was on CoStar, and I oh, copied yeah. like four thousand words of this CoStar report of all this data and information, and I just pasted it all in the Chat GPT, and I said summarize it in a blog post format, less than fifteen hundred words, and it just spat out a very concise, easy to read. Yeah. Like these are the main points. Right now, so we're having a many of some people walking around. We're having a bunch, a lot of our property managers on site today. We're having like this kind of like in company kind of conference, and we're recording all of the meetings and having Google create transcripts for all the meetings. We're going to take the transcripts of the meetings, put it in the chat, chat GPT to summarize all the main points and identify action items from the meeting. 
Yeah. So we're going to see how it works. Just an, an, an efficient way to take notes. Mm-hmm. It's still a good idea to take notes. A lot of people learn that way and might miss something. But the AI actually might be able to pick out some things that we missed. Yeah. There are limitations, but the limitations don't feel good about yourself as a human because of the limitations because they're going to get over them really quickly. I did want to know if it could do humor. And I copied and pasted this so we don't have to write this. I said, write a funny article about a world dominated by chat GPT. Oh. And it said, in a future... A short article. No, this is just a paragraph. Okay. (laughs) In a future dominated by chat GPT, life would be a never-ending series of hilarious and unexpected conversations. Imagine walking into a into a restaurant and asking for a table for two only to have chat GPT reply, sorry, we're all booked up. But if you don't mind sharing a table with a talking dog, we might be able to squeeze you in. I'm going to pause for laughter on that one. (laughs) Or going to the doctor for a checkup and having chat GPT diagnose you with chronic punculosis, a deadly disease characterized by an inability to stop making terrible jokes. The possibilities are endless, wink, wink. And they're all completely absurd. So be warned, if ChatGPT ever takes over the world, we're all in for a wild ride. And that's, it wrote that? Yeah. It wrote. Yeah, but it's not funny. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> that is, it, that's what it is. It is the it is a generic thing. But but, so, but, that, but the, what are the use cases? Because like you, you're you yeah. taking a different tack on it than I'm taking. So yeah. you're like, write, write a, write an article, write a story, write something that's funny. And like I was, which I think is like a really good, in, interesting use case. Then I also was like, okay, what, how, what is the best way to build this table in Google Sheets or Excel? What is the for? And it laid it, out all it the does, formulas. And you were and showing me this too. It makes code. Yeah. It said, and it, it, it's the server's down, so we can't show everybody right now. But I literally, I said, I said, write me a line of code that shows an apartment building with like, with like cash flow, with cash flow. Yeah. And it wrote a piece of HTML that I could drop into my website. Yeah. I asked it, which I wish it would work for this. I asked. What is the definition of a cap rate? Give me one of the best, simple, straightforward definitions. Yeah, it's yeah. an easy definition, but it's a, one of the better definitions I read for a cap rate. Yeah. I then asked it, what is the cap rate for multifamily apartment in Indianapolis in 2022? Which big questions up in the air. Limitations of chat GBT is it doesn't have any information post 2021. Yep. Cause that's where all their archives. Yeah. Is, so yeah. they don't have like real time information, which they it's not even attached to the internet. So this isn't going out. There the is internet. some, supposedly there is a version that goes out in the internet. Well, comes it, back, but yeah. And if it'd be very, really powerful. For sure. But the answer it gave me to what the cap rate is in Indianapolis was, it was such, it was a very correct answer. Yeah. So at first it said, look, like I, I don't know what it is because I'm not connected to the internet. I don't have real time information. But cap rate is determined by these different factors, location, cash flows. Here's a formula for yeah. it. And the best way to f- understand your cap rate is to reach out to a real estate professional. Oh, so they didn't even market. tell you? No. They, you they, 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 a but robot it, apologist. It, it was, but it, no, it was, but it was a trick. It was a trick, a trick question because yeah. nobody knows. Yeah. But they still gave the right response because they told me, yeah. they, they still told me like how to do it. They're like, you need to reach out to a professional in the market. There's always the answer. But what's... If, Going bigger pockets. How do I find yeah, out the yeah, cap? Yeah. Talk to your brokers. Talk to your lenders. You're not asking the right question. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and so it's going to be really interesting. What applications are worth it? What aren't? I, I that's what I said. To think that this doesn't touch upon the multifamily industry would be to deny the broad and powerful impacts this is going to have on the way that we communicate. On the way you were just saying, and this is part of some of the research that I was doing about this, is the way that people generate and use this as a generative tool 
for themselves and write it. They'll give you ideas. It's maybe it won't write for you, but it'll get you started. Yeah. It'll help you do research. It may help you get past yeah. the 10 pages of Google links that aren't working. It'll get you right yeah. to the information. Yeah. Apartment syndication companies can have chat GTBT write up a bunch of blog posts. They explain how IRR is calculated, how distribution waterfalls work, or the differences between a re and a private syndication. Maybe you're working on a rebrand and you're getting your company started and you need it a mission statement. I put mission statement for a multifamily investment company and chat GPT gave me like five of them. Like it was excited <laughs> to write it because that is exactly but, the kind of generic that they would love. But the conversation we were having earlier and which I think is important is by using AI, you're going to get the average. Yes. You're not going to get the best. Mm-hmm. So it, obviously most people aren't shooting for average. And so to make it really good, you still need that human element, but it can yeah. be a good prompt, good starter, good way to brainstorm. Absolutely. Good filler for things that aren't mm-hmm. that important. But if you want yourself to stand out, your mission statement is if everyone uses the same yeah. AI yeah. for their mission statement, everyone's going to have basically the same mission statement. Mm-hmm. But so you need, so that's where the human element comes in. So but what real, what, what, what are, what is our mission? And you have to affect mm-hmm. that and change that. But Hey, give me some examples of mission statements to get me started. I was talking is great. I was talking to my eight year olds at dinner last night about this. I don't care. But I was like, you're going to use this to cheat on your high school paper soon. <laughs> well, I think it's going to be like Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. where, where it's like, usually you can't use Wikipedia mm-hmm. as students at the time. We're like, why, why not? Why not? Why not? Use but it. he did tell So yeah. one of my sons that was talking about, oh, he's like, do you know what the uncanny valley is? And I told him, and this directly relates to it in a roundabout way. It's yeah. It's when things look funny because they're not quite right. And I told him like your vision of what is uncanny and what's weird changes. I think that people, that one thing is going to, it's going to change the way that people receive information as well. They will be able to tell, okay, this looks like it was an AI and this looks like it's got some new stuff, some things that are, that's just out of the ordinary, that it's not going to be caught within this, the kind of more generic chat GPT line of text writing. Is is like the byline going to be that much more important of, is this going to be written by a person and you're not allowed to fake it. Don't be right. Do using AI yeah, and, yeah. Put, and putting your name on a bio. It will or, be, or is it going to be a, not by, but prompted by with assistance from Ed with, I don't know what, how they're, exactly. how that's going to be cited. I did ask for cited sources in like an article with cited right. sources yeah. and they made up a source, but the author was a like professor of that field of studies. And the publisher was like right there. It was like, it, again, that was the most uncanny. It was like, wow, this is like almost real and just fake enough to pass now, let's the get smell right test. Right into the reports, though, mm-hmm. that's fascinating because it, and it, it tells you not. It's be the limitations are sometimes they'll throw out things that aren't real. Yeah. So I just it's working again for a little bit. So I asked, what is a cap rate? Give a very nice definition of what a cap rate is. But now I want to try just and if this doesn't work, we'll just cut this out. But we need our video. I want to do what I did yesterday, which is essentially I'm going to take. A video, one of our. We, let's let's do that eight now. minute one because that might be easy. No, no, no. Oh no, I want to. Oh, do you want to do a really long? I want to do a really, really okay, long. Okay, then one. go to our last. I mean, okay, okay. I, if multifamily. Okay, let's see if this is the right one. Yeah. Well, that's a great, great picture. Of me. <laughs> so I'm going to go here, and um, there's a little, make a little ellipses. Show transcript. Okay. So this is auto automatically generated. So not all of this is even correct. Like they are misspelling Matt's name wrong. And this is just using an AI to, or I don't know, whatever bot to take all of this whole transcript. This is, this is a 50 minute, which is whatever. It's just long enough with the timestamps and all of that. All right. So I'm going to ask this to please summarize the following 
transcript. 200 words. 200, 200 words? 200. And let's give it 250. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wanted to keep getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> words are less. Enter. I'm going to paste this whole thing in. While it's cogitating, I do just want to say one one final thing. I got to... It's already Okay. Done. Oh, man, it's already Dang! <laughs> so The Gray Report is a podcast discussing the latest news articles, research, and data related to multifamily real estate investing. In this episode, the host and guest, which when I asked to do longer, it included our names. Oh, nice. And it spelled your name wrong. Discussed the recent redemptions from BlackRock. It's Blackstone, but I think that was my fault. B-Reed and Starwood. They explained that this is due to the difference in performance between public traded REITs, which have seen losses, and private REITs, which have reported growth. Discussion also covers the difference between public and private markets with a focus on liquidity and investor preferences. Wait, for 250 words, I mean, yeah. for we just gave it a lot of stuff and yeah. it was able to figure that out. Yeah. And that is a like a legible description. Yeah, no, I agree. And this is just what I said is uh, what I wanted to come back to is like, I have a little bit of a complicated relationship with the idea of a robot writing things. I went to school. It's like an English major. I got a PhD in literary studies because I cherish the way that a great piece of writing can you really got a human connection between author and readers? And I haven't really fully come to yeah. terms with how AI-assisted writing processes is going to change this connection. It's going to change it, but I, like I, it is just a big question mark. But even with my vested interest in human authors, there's no way I'm ignoring this technology. And I think that it would behoove anyone, writers included, even if you still use a fountain pen, to, uh, to, to figure it out. I'm going to keep using it, keep finding ways where it can help me and the team be more productive. And instead of running from it, I'm going to get good at it. I think that's the way to do it. And because uh, I think that this is coming fast. And what if you play around on ChatGPT, make a free account, you're going to see things that maybe don't look perfect, but I guarantee you there's another version waiting in the wings and it's going to be bang on. It's a tool. Yeah. It's a tool. It's no different from a hammer. It's how you swing it. And the, like the art is like the proper inputs and what you can do yeah. knowing how to, and how to use it. I just want to try another one. I just copied the whole Yardy report. Yeah. I just control a, and I'm going to control, control right. a, control C, control V summarize the following report. And this is, it's got tables in here that aren't going to be formatted correctly. So this could just come out all wrong, but let's See? put it, let's put it to the test. All right. All right. Let's show everyone what it looks My like. My favorite part of this whole gray report was when I thought like that this is the input, when I thought that it would take a minute for it to calculate and it was done in 10 seconds. Yeah. It's thinking. Here we go. Man. I will say that I did this myself. <laughs> I didn't have Chat GPT to write my notes this time, but maybe I maybe I will. I think that Damn, paragraph whole report. And that's another thing too is if I just had it write that, I don't know if I don't know if I'd understand the report with as much yeah, depth. Well, there's no way you could. Yeah, there's no way you're going to turn a report into a paragraph, but still that ability to summarize I think is quite powerful. In, yeah. in any other prompts again, I could do this all, all day. Last but. night I wrote write a write an article or write about nuclear energy in the style of Mark Twain. Oh, good. Article on <laughs> nuclear fusion. Nuclear nuclear fusion in the style of Mark Twain. I'll say which we're, we didn't even get the nuclear fusion today, man. We're going to do that next week. <laughs> I'll say when I read it last, I, week. I gave it a question mark. I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not sure if I'm supposed to ask a question or tell you. Oh it's God. such a caricature. <laughs> it doesn't have a quite nail. Now I know. <laughs> hey there, it's your old pal Mark Twain here, and I got a mighty fine. But this thing is like original. Like <laughs> about a little thing called nuclear fusion. Now I know what you're thinking. So it, wow. maybe it's not like a perfect art 
No, but it's again, it's a tool. Every tool's but got it, limitations. Yep. And sometimes the limitations. Better. Yeah. They're absolutely going to make it better. Sometimes the limitations and the flaws are actually where you can make real art in by understanding yeah, those limitations. Yeah. You know, like in, in music and in the audio world, it's like imperfections sometimes are desirable. Like yeah. distortion yeah. is desirable. Distortion is a destruction of a signal and saturation of a signal, but it's like desirable. Yeah. And understanding those imperfections and how to control them can be a very powerful creative tool. And I think this is the same thing. And yeah. that's where you see the, on the AI art, it's, it's challenging to be creative enough to figure out the right inputs. And like your input on yep. Mark Twain about nuclear fission or whatever, that's the, where the creativity in mm-hmm. the human, in, where you're going to need the human input. Now I'm sure you can get an yep. AI to write the really good AI prompts too, but again, you're going to get the average. And I still think that the human mind and yeah. humanity there's is, still an hasn't appet- replicated. Yeah, and there's still so an appetite. I think that in the people don't want, they'd rather have something that's more real than more fake. And so I think that there's going, that's why I said like it's, it may change the way that things are perceived. There may be something that we're not anticipating that it, that refers to like people's taste for oh, I'd rather it was written by a human uh, yeah. but that that could be wishful thinking maybe people are just like no just give it give me an article I don't really care who wrote it or how it was written but <laughs> I agree so we'll see how this works thank you for tuning in to the multifamily podcast the great report we hope you enjoyed this episode and found the information insightful we discussed to be valuable if you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes please feel free to reach out to us we look forward to continuing the conversation bringing you more content on the exciting world of multifamily real estate investing thanks for listening we'll see you in the next episode i would have done it differently had my own spin on it but (laughs) it works it we works. got the average. All right. Thanks for watching this episode of The Great Report. Make sure you're subscribed to The Great Capital YouTube channel. You're giving us a, if you like the show, a comment saying that I don't want to hear about AI. That's a buzzword and I'm sick of it, but check it out. The next episode, and if you're a credit investor saying besides AI, I want to partner with these guys on real estate investments, happy to have that conversation with you. Go to great.fund and learn more. All right, Matt and I out. See you in the next episode.